2: You won't take part in choosing the next Prime Minister unless you're one of a relatively small group, a member of the Conservative Party. Tory MPs have to whittle a field of candidates to lead them and the country down to two by the end of next week.
3: A number of your colleagues have actually said that they wondered whether you might think about standing.
0: I'll be straight with you, Robert. Yes, I will.
2: We need seriousness and integrity back in our government. It's time for a clean start. Right now, the hopefuls are duking it out for support.
0: Penny Mordaunt has just launched her leadership campaign. Uh, She has tweeted to say, leadership has
1: to change. It needs to become a little less about the leader and a lot more about the ship. I will have no part in a rewriting of history that seeks to
2: demonize Boris. I've been very lucky. I've self-made. I'm the beneficiary of the British dream. Um, But I I am wealthy, you're absolutely right. It's when the final pair emerge that Tory party members will pick the winner, your prime minister. I actually came to a conclusion that another candidate had the right policies.
3: Politics is brutal though, isn't
2: it? Isn't it? But who exactly are these members? What will sway their votes and what will all this mean for you? We shouldn't just stop the corporation tax rises, I think we should cut them. Liz
4: Truss has declared that she'll run, pledging to cut taxes from day one. I will not enter into a tax-bidding war over my tax cuts are bigger than yours. It is not credible. I think Rishi Sunak was not a successful Chancellor.
2: Alligators slithering down committee corridors, puff adders behind the photocopiers. What a broiling, sticky day it's been in the primeval marshlands of Westminster. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, after Boris Johnson, what next for the Tory party? Later on, I'll be talking to fellow Times columnist Danny Finkelstein about the stark choices facing the next PM, whoever wins. As Danny has written, that person faces one final contest against reality. But for now, I want to know more about the people choosing the winner. By dint of their Conservative membership, a tiny minority of the UK population is about to be given that task. But who exactly are they? One person who has a pretty good idea is politics professor Tim Bale from Queen Mary University of London.
3: I have a special research interest in political parties and in political party membership. I'm also very interested in the Conservative Party.
2: Now, one of the things that you've been doing, Tim, is looking at Conservative Party members. And this is very interesting because, by and large, political scientists tend to look at voters and not at the members of political parties. Why did you decide to look at the members?
3: Well, because they are absolutely crucial to British democracy. They are the foot soldiers, if you like, of political parties. Without them, political parties couldn't fight elections. They couldn't recruit pools of candidates. And some would argue they would have no ideological anchor. So in as much as anybody is important to democracy, these ordinary party members are actually quite crucial. They're also a very rare species. Only about 1% to 2% of people in this country are members of political parties, so there is a kind of rarity value in studying them. I mean, anyone can do voters, but party members, there's something a bit special about them.
2: Uh, The other thing that interests me about party members is that back in the 50s, you measured party membership in the millions, and yet the party members didn't actually have much formal power. Now, you measure them in much less, and we'll come on to exactly how much in a moment, but
3: they seem to have more power. And that really is a general trend right across the democratic world. Intraparty democracy, as political scientists call it, has been a trend really over the last few decades. I think as it's become more difficult to recruit members over the decades, they've had to be given more, if you like, for their money. Uh, And that more comes in the form of uh, an input into policy in some parties and in most parties and input into the selection of candidates, and in particular leadership candidates. So it's a trade-off, if you like, for political parties. Without giving, if you like, more consumerist 21st century citizens something, I think they'd be in real trouble in terms of actually getting party members to join at all.
2: Conservative party members were given a direct say in the election of their party leader in 2001, after the Tories lost that year's general election to Tony Blair's new Labour.
3: William Hague made that change because so many Conservative Party members were upset about the situation the party had got itself into in the 1990s and were really baying for blood. And to some extent, William Hague giving them a vote on the party leadership was a kind of sop to party members who were incredibly upset by the John Major years.
2: So now we have the system whereby the MPs essentially decide which two candidates are going to go to the party membership and those two candidates go forward. So now we'd better talk about who that party membership actually is. Can you talk me through what we know about the Tory party membership, how many of them there are, who they are, their demographics, where they live and so on?
3: Well, determining how many members the Conservative Party has is actually quite difficult because the Conservative Party, unlike almost every other party, doesn't report the figures in its return to the Electoral Commission every year. The advantage in some ways of leadership contests is that uh, they are forced to come up with a figure because they have to send out um, ballot slips to uh, their membership. And in 2019, we know that there were around 154,500 Conservative Party members eligible to vote in that election. Now, since then, Amanda Milling, who used to be co chairman of the Conservative Party a couple of years ago, said they had 200,000 members. I suspect that that probably has dropped off since then. So I would guess it's around 175,000 members, which is actually probably at least half of what Labour have got, although it is probably a good deal more than the Liberal Democrats have got.
2: What proportion of them, whoever they are, would we expect to vote in the election? In
3: 2019, turnout in that leadership election was 87%. So most of them I would have thought will vote. And that is obviously a lot higher than is the case for general elections.
2: So it really matters who these people are and where they are. So now let's go through things like the age profile and other aspects of demographic profile.
3: You still hear some people, infuriatingly for me, say that the average age of a Conservative Party member is 72, I think. That comes from some surveys done back in the 1990s, but it is actually quite outdated. We've been running surveys of party members and the Conservative Party membership since 2013, and the average age is in their late 50s. So 57 would be about the average age. But having said that, that still means that four out of 10 of them are over 65, So they are, relatively speaking, older than the rest of the population, and they certainly don't have many young members. So if we look at members between the ages of 18 and 24, only 6% of Conservative members fall into that age bracket. Now, do we know where they are? We do, yes. Um, As you would expect, given the Conservative Party's traditional strengths, most of them live in the south of England. So outside of London and the rest of southern England, That's where around four in 10 Conservative Party members live. Now, that sounds quite skewed, but of course, you have to remember that the population of the UK in general is quite skewed towards southern England. But yes, this is very much a party of southern England, although they do have, obviously, people living in the the north uh, and in other places. So around one in five live in the north of England and around 10 percent, 15 percent live in London.
2: And what do we know about ethnic demographics?
3: Ethnic minority people in the UK don't join political parties as much as white British people, but it's particularly pronounced in the Conservative Party. So at least 95% of Conservative Party members, and probably higher actually, would classify themselves as white British. So they're certainly not representative of the UK population as a whole. But that's in some ways quite interesting because, of course, if you look at the lineup of Candidates, which is, of course, a movable feast at the moment, a lot of them are themselves from ethnic minorities. So, in some ways, the candidates on offer don't look very much like the people who are going to be voting for them.
2: Now, this is a tricky question to answer, but it strikes me as being really quite important. When it comes to something like mass house-building, which is in the interest, or seems to be in the interest, of a lot of voters... Would we expect from the position that these people have, who they are, what they have, where they live, them to be the kind of people who resist such moves?
3: I think that's probably right with one caveat. And this is a caveat that also perhaps applies to their attitudes to the NHS. On the one hand, these are people who probably own their own homes and are concerned about protecting the value of their own homes. But on the other hand, of course they will have children and in many cases grandchildren who are hoping to get on the housing ladder and will be finding it difficult. And presumably that message will be getting through to them. And as I say, it's easy to caricature conservatives as wanting a very small state, very low tax, very low spending. But of course, especially as they get older, they do rely on the health service. So they're not going to want to see that cut to the bone in in the way that perhaps some of the more ambitious leadership candidates tax proposals would seem to imply.
2: Now, just before we move on to the next series of questions I want to ask you, I'd like to know how much things have changed since you started studying the Conservative Party. When I was younger, the stereotype of a Conservative Party member was a woman with blue rinse, and you've already exploded that idea, who supported capital punishment, corporal punishment, and often got the two confused.
3: (laughs) I mean, certainly it is the case that Conservative Party members are socially pretty conservative. And certainly, compared to uh, Conservative MPs, they will have what some people would consider less progressive attitudes on things like capital punishment. But I think it would be a mistake to see them necessarily as hangers and floggers anymore. There's there's a proportion of them who might be into that, might be into longer prison sentences, etc., etc. But they're not overwhelmingly throwbacks, if you like, to the 1950s in that sense.
2: Now, let's move on to the power that they have. Would you say that it's fair that considering the size of the membership, 175,000, it's an incredible power to choose the next prime minister, not just the next leader, but the next prime minister, isn't it?
3: Oh, it's huge. I mean, they make up, I think, something like 0.4% of the electorate. (laughs) The chance to actually choose the next prime minister is an incredible privilege. And in some ways, it's the only privilege apart from selecting parliamentary candidates, that Conservative Party members have, because they have absolutely no input into policy whatsoever. So the only way that they can determine the direction of the party and indeed the country is by choosing the leader. That's why many of them join. And that's why many of them participate, I think, in such big numbers when it comes to these elections. In the first
2: instance, these candidates have to appeal to Tory MPs, and then, if they're successful, to get through to the last two, to the country. Are those two different constituencies? In other words, do you have to do something different to the MPs, to what you have to do to the Tory party members?
3: When it comes to social values, Conservative MPs are actually much more liberal Uh, than the members. So I'm not so sure that in the first stage of the contest, it does make as much sense as some people think to talk about the war on woke, because although some Conservative MPs are into that, the majority of them probably aren't. But that might have a little bit more appeal in the second stage of the contest, where you're appealing to members who are rather more socially Conservative than the Tory MPs. When it comes to economic values, however, it's the other way around. Conservative Party MPs are what you would consider neoliberal or Thatcherites, almost to a man or a woman. But that's not necessarily the case for Conservative Party members. They look rather more like Conservative voters, and indeed all voters, than do Conservative MPs. So if you ask questions like, should government redistribute income from those who are better off to those who are less well off, Conservative MPs are much more likely to reject that idea than are Conservative Party members. And it's also the case, for example, when you give them a statement like, ordinary working people do not get their fair share of the nation's wealth. Again, Conservative MPs disagree with that a lot more than do Conservative Party members members. So in as much as you're know, you trying to appeal in this two-stage process, I guess you would say in the first stage, you don't want to be too socially conservative, but you want to be pretty neoliberal. And in the second stage, I think you want to be quite socially conservative, but not too neoliberal. Now,
2: that's very interesting. So the next obvious question is, if that's what you're presenting to your members in the second stage, how close is what they
3: want to what we can tell that the electorate might want. It's still quite a long way, actually. It's still very much the case that Conservative Party members are much more inclined to a smaller state, uh, to limited spending uh, and certainly to limited redistribution uh, than our ordinary voters. And in particular, actually, in comparison to those voters who switched to the Conservatives in 2019.
2: So if you were trying to Fashion a brief to put before the membership. You're one of the last two. What would you stick in it?
3: I'd say make sure that you are completely committed to the National Health Service and completely committed to spending money on policing. I would not make quite as much of the war on woke as some Conservative MPs would like. I would emphasise an aspiration towards tax cuts, but not at the cost of public services and public spending more generally.
2: Coming up, Danny Finkelstein
4: on the tough choices facing the victor, whoever that might be. Any new leader will have to cope with the same reality and the reality will kick back when they try and kick reality. That's in just a
0: moment. I'm Charlotte Ivers, political correspondent for Times Radio and columnist for The Sunday Times. Every day I'm in Westminster, working out what our politicians are doing, why they're doing it and what that means for you and me. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: So now we understand something about the Tory members who have the final say in this leadership election about what they want. But what about the candidates? We're not going to get into all the latest details of who said what in the campaign. Instead, we're looking at the big picture, with someone who understands the party better than most. I'm Daniel Finkelstein. I'm a columnist on The Times Newspaper. Now Danny you're also a conservative peer and you've been a conservative for a very long time you're also actually an expert on the conservative party whoever wins the leadership election will be facing the same problems it doesn't change just because you've changed leader they'll all be leading any one of them will be leading a party that's been in power now for 12 years can we walk through those challenges and see if what we're seeing is new dividing lines in the party or if everything's the same so First, let's look at taxes. The way in which candidates have gone about it, you'd have thought that everybody's agreed, everybody but one person, that you can cut taxes somehow, but keep on doing the things that people want to have done.
4: Yes. Actually, there are two candidates who haven't said that, one of whom is Rishi Sunak and the other, interestingly enough, was Kami Badnock, which was interesting because she didn't have to take that position. Uh, It suggested a certain maturity uh, on her part, in my opinion. Yes, there does seem to be quite a lot of support for kind of instant tax cuts. I think on the sort of false view that if you make the cuts, they won't cost any money because they will produce growth that completely compensates for them there's no empirical evidence that this will happen it's a purely theoretical idea and i don't think reality will yield to them in quite the way they think it will okay so
2: essentially whoever's leader elected leader will come in with the same kind of economic situation and from what you're suggesting would probably find themselves
4: having to handle it in the same way that would be my guess. Look, I think they may try and handle it differently. One of their problems will be that the uh, the, the Office of Budget Responsibility will tell them that they're wrong to dynamically try and cost this in other words to try and to try and assume that there'll be revenue there'll be more revenue coming in than the cost of the tax cuts and the OBR will score it and the score will not be what the Chancellor or the Prime Minister want them to score it as it'll be whatever they think it uh, should be scored at and that will make a difference to their borrowing plans and to the look of the budget and they'll have to make a decision about how much borrowing they're willing to advance and also- Also, I suppose there'll there'll be some candidates who think, look, I can get to an election making these changes, and the consequences may be seen only after an election, and it's worthwhile doing that. That does happen too. But I think it'll be less easy to make these instant tax cuts than some of the candidates appear to suggest, yes.
2: Now, another reality which they'll have to face is that Brexit, parts of Brexit, are simply not resolved.
4: After Brexit, a protocol enforced new checks on goods
3: going from England, Scotland and Wales into Northern Ireland. The EU said it was necessary to protect its single market. The UK now says it's putting peace at risk.
1: The government's bill will contain provisions to effectively abolish the controversial
2: Irish Sea customs checks. We have the Northern Ireland Protocol, where the legislation has just been passed. The EU will see that as a breach of law.
0: Our preference remains the negotiated solution with the EU. However, to respond to the very grave and serious situation in Northern Ireland, we are clear there is a necessity to act.
2: Whoever's leader will have to face that. Will it make any difference which of them is elected to how they deal with it?
4: Yeah, I suspect so. I I would, I mean, first of all, we also know that if Liz Truss were to win the leadership, she would persist with her bill, which she mainly sees, I've spoken to her about it, as a negotiating position. She hopes that she can move the European Union, but it can only be a successful negotiating position if you persist with it. So I think that there would be a difference between her dealing with it and Rishi Sunak's position which he also articulated in cabinet which is that he doesn't want a trade war with Europe he figures that the economic impact will be greater than any gain that we can get so I'm sure that he will seek an agreement and there may be a difference in Europe's position if they can see that the government's chosen somebody who's willing to negotiate with them although there may not be. Very interesting. What about net zero? We've heard an
2: awful lot from a certain section of the Tory party, and some for some of the candidates. Essentially, we should ditch commitments to net zero because they're too difficult and they're too expensive, especially at a time like this. Again, does whose elected leader make a difference to whether those pledges are kept?
4: It might do a bit. I think on the whole almost everybody will do the same thing in the end, which is they'll adjust the policies on net zero to give themselves a little bit more economic wiggle room without abandoning them. And they'll maintain the rhetoric on it. And ultimately, lots of the questions that you're asking add up to the same thing, which is any new leader will have to cope with the same reality. And the reality will kick back when they try and kick reality. And reality in those circumstances will win. It's a bit like when people used to say that Boris Johnson was above the rules. And I always used to reply, nobody ultimately can evade the rules. That's why they're rules. And it turns out the rules of politics were not altered by his existence. So you're quite right in this thrust of questioning. All of them will face the same reality. They'll, they'll, they'll adjust to it in slightly different ways. It's, in, it's impossible to be sure exactly how, but I doubt whether any of them will involve abandoning the overall commitment to net zero. Now, there are some
2: things which don't quite fit into the pattern of you have to deal with a a reality. In other words, they're where somebody can try and create some reality of their own. I'm thinking about two in particular, which you might call fringe culture war issues, whether or not we depart from the European Court of Human Rights, and whether we persist with the Rwandan refugee policy. Now, what would you expect to be the difference
4: there, depending upon who was elected? Okay, well, actually, I don't quite agree that it doesn't engage reality. Let's take the European Convention of Human Rights. The government assumes at the moment that it'll introduce its bill, it'll make a big difference uh, abolishing the Human Rights Act and replacing it with a British Bill of Rights, even though we're still in the ECHR. And it'll quickly find out that's not the case. And then there'll be a debate about whether we should leave the ECHR. That does engage reality because it engages the question of our diplomatic position in the world, which any prime minister will take two looks at and realise they don't want to leave the ECHR. The Rwandan thing is slightly different. I strongly suspect that Rishi Sunak, would be tempted not to implement that, whereas Liz Truss would be, and Penny Morden, I think, would sort of not be sure. That, I think, <laughs> is slightly different. That isn't an issue of reality. That, But Rishi Sunet may conclude that it doesn't work, and therefore it's not a battle worth having. I'm not sure what he thinks about that, actually. Let's talk a bit, a little bit
2: about how people will play this campaign. Will it be kind of war as it is in the states, or
4: comradeship with minor differences? Probably more the latter. If you are a candidate, let's take for example Kemi Badenoch. Right, the purpose of running in this leadership election is for Kemi Badenoch to make an impression and to be in a serious position in someone else's government. She can, of course, decide to attack Liz Truss for being a appeaser or something, or as James Cleverly has done, accuse Rishi of being a Labour Chancellor. But you're not enhancing your chances of senior ministerial office should that person win. Um, Hmm. And you've got to work that out. You know, you've got to think to yourself, well, how likely am I to win? How likely are they to win? Is this a good idea? Uh, So my (laughs) view is it will at least it'll end up being, because everyone's dependent on the winner, to put them in office it'll probably be more collegiate. So kind of I think I should be the leader not you but if you are the
2: leader I'd make a wonderful chancellor.
4: Yeah but that is the reason why it was the document that was distributed around conservative MPs which consists of a sort of list of reasons not to vote for Rishi Sunak. It was quite unusual in a, in a leadership election.
2: Yeah because he presumably if he becomes the leader and knowing whose campaign might have done it
4: he's not going to touch them with a barge pole. Well, I think that's probably stretching it a bit, but he certainly it's not an, it's not an advert.
2: <laughs> Danny, is all this a bit quick? I mean, is it, I mean, it's all going to be over by September. I seem to remember that with Michael Howard, it was a nice, leisurely process. The rivals for the leadership of the Conservative Party are, of course, David Davis,
3: who's 56 who's been an MP for 18 years, who's at present Shadow Home Secretary, and David Cameron, who's 39 and has been an MP for only four
2: years. Which went to the Tory party conference and there was David Cameron doing his unscripted speech, which went down like a storm. You and I were both there.
3: A modern, compassionate conservatism is right for our times, right for this new generation, right for our party and right for our country. And if we have the courage to grab it, to seize it, the bravery to fight for it with every ounce of vigour and passion in our bodies. Nothing and no one will stop us. Thank you.
4: Isn't this a bit hurried? Well, that's an interesting question because it's the opposite. Everyone else has been going on about, you know, are we doing this fast enough because we've got a prime minister in power that people feel ought to be replaced relatively swiftly. Certainly, we have to have long enough to be able to make a judgment about some of the candidates who've got less public profile. I thought this was true of Ben Wallace, but it's certainly also true of Penny Mordant, that one of the reasons people are attracted to them is a little bit because they don't know very much about them and they're all promise. I've seen her do a number of softball interviews. She did pretty well on those what i'd like to know is how good is she under fire and actually that's also true to some extent of rishi Sunak. we've seen more of him so i i do think you would have to have long enough to do that but i i should think a month probably is long enough to do that in the membership stage and at the parliamentary stage it's quite swift but probably they don't need as long because they've seen these people close up for quite a long time okay danny why 2024,
2: the Conservative Party will have been in power for 14 years, and for nine of them on its own. How far do you think the leader will face the time for a change mood in the electorate? In other words, aren't they facing an
4: uphill struggle to get a Tory majority again in 2024, whoever they are? Right. So the pendulum effect by itself, you can calculate, in other words, if you look at the effect in previous elections... Would take the Labour Party basically to the border of depriving the Conservative Party of its majority, but not over it. So, by itself, I don't think that the time for a change works. to to live a Labour majority, but it has, there are two other features that can push the pendulum further. One of which is leadership approval, and the other of which is the economy. It does look to me as though they're going to be fighting against the backdrop of quite a difficult economy, but it's possible that in 2024, the economy doesn't look as bad as it does in 2023. That's possible. Then leadership approval, should they make a mistake and choose somebody whom the public doesn't like, when pendulum effect is married to uh, low leadership approval, then it's very powerful, and then it will produce enough to remove the Conservative body from office. So when you're facing a pendulum effect, removing the leader and trying to replace him with someone else is an obvious move when the leader has low approval ratings but we don't just have a pendulum effect because
2: we actually have two other opposition parties in slightly different places for the
4: Conservative Party. Yes. Uh, don't you think that makes it more likely that they will lose their majority? Yes, it does. But that assumes the creation of a tactical effect, even if it is not actual tactical voting. What I have described as a sort of negative partisanship, where the thing that drives everybody everywhere is wanting to get rid of the Conservative Party. A lot depends on the view of the neutral and the centre to the choice of leaders. But I think you can tell that the Conservative Party faces a very difficult election environment, and only in the circumstances where it picks a leader who has pretty good approval ratings, and the economy goes for it reasonably well, will it retain its majority? And those are pretty big ifs.
2: you've been listening to stories of our times a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of the times and the sunday times with me david aronovich and my guests times columnist and conservative member of the house of lords danny finkelstein and professor of politics at queen mary university of london tim bale you can find all the latest about the leadership race at the times.co.uk or in print and you can tune in to times radio every tuesday morning from ten thirty for finkelbitch where danny and i debate the issues of the day with matt chorley The producers were Edward Drummond and James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. Manveen will be back tomorrow with part four of Last Man Standing with war correspondent Anthony Lloyd. And you can catch up on the previous episodes by searching for Last Man Standing in your podcast app. See you again soon.